Let's just dive right in. John chapter 5. It says this. Oops, not that one. Um, Janet, can you put on the, the presentation? John chapter 5, the first two verses. It's almost there. <laughs> it says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now first of all, it says after this there was a feast of the Jews, and we don't know exactly what feast of the Jews is referring to here, uh, though there are a lot of guesses. Um, there are three feasts of the Jews where they would go to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, no matter where they were throughout the nation of Israel, or even into the uttermost parts of the earth. And they would make this journey to arrive there in Jerusalem to celebrate these particular festivals. It tells us in Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So whether they were coming from the far north, whatever their, their town was, whatever their village, whatever their tribe, the closer they would get to Jerusalem, the less individual they would become, and the more collectively it would be acknowledged that they were the people of God. They would gather together there. They would celebrate um, these three feasts according to God's faithfulness, the Passover, um, or Pentecost, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, there are three Passovers listed in the Gospel of John. One in John chapter 2, where he cleanses the temple. One in John chapter 6, which we'll see in the next chapter. And then the, the last one is in John 18 and 19. So being that there's already three Passovers mentioned in the Gospel of John, it's unlikely that this feast is the Feast of Passover, but as far as which other feast it was, whether it was Pentecost or Tabernacles, that's not exactly important to the story. What is important to the story is that Jesus was there, that Jesus showed up, that he made the trek from Galilee up to Jerusalem, and instead of going to parades and palaces, he goes to a place of pools, porches, and paralytics. And that's where we're about to find him. It's this place, as it says there, by the sheep gate, by the sheep gate, um, and this place was called Bethesda. Now, Bethesda is a compound word. We find that word Beth in like Bethlehem, the house of bread, or Bethshan. We see it there. Um, so the first word, bet, is the house of. Bethesda, it's the house of hesed. Hesed is a deep word in the Hebrew. It's sometimes translated as loving kindness. It's sometimes translated as, um, as like uh, tender mercy. It's sometimes translated or, or explained as like God's covenantal love. It's such a deep theological term in the Hebrew. Uh, but here, this house of mercy, 
Bethesda. Now, it's by the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was on the north side of the Temple Mount. Uh, It's inside the city walls. So this is inside the city of Jerusalem, just there on the north side of the Temple Mount. And when you're talking about being just there close to the Temple Mount, and I'm talking close. I'm talking like from here to the parking structure from the Temple Mount. Like you can look down the alley and you can see the Temple Mount through the Sheep Gate from this place. And with that, something was really important on the Temple Mount was water. And the reason water was so important is because you had a lot of priests. And with their priestly duties, there were ceremonial washings that were required. Not only were there ceremonial washings that were required, but there was lots and lots of animal sacrifice. And after the sacrifice, there was lots and lots of cleanup that was required. So water on the Temple Mount was a super important commodity. Now there, with that, let me just kind of show you this. Now this is something that we just saw, super fun. Um, This is at the, the Israeli Museum. And at the Israeli Museum, they've put together a, a model of the old city of Jerusalem that you could basically fit in this room. And then there's all these walkways around it. You can kind of see what the old city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus looked like. So with that, let me just show you here where we're at. So here you see these two dudes for um, scale. And then anybody kind of got to guess what this big building is right here? What is, anybody? Is that Bank of America? What, what is that? What's that big building right there? Anybody? That's the Temple Mount. That's the Temple Mount. They said that during this time, that you, if you hadn't seen Herod's temple, you haven't seen a beautiful building. So in here, you got like the courtyard, and then right here, you have like the, the bronze laver, and um, you would have the, um, for the washing, and you would have the, the brazen altar, and then inside, the holy place, and then the holy of holies, where, you know, one priest, the high priest once a year could meet with God. Okay, up here, this big castle-looking thing, that was the Herodian. So he, what a cool, like, I'm the king that has, like, as my, you know, side porch happens to be the Temple Mount. So that's the Herodian. And then here you get this little walkway, this little walkway. Coming in from this little walkway onto the Temple Mount, that would be the Sheep Gate. And then right here by this little, you have this, this little double building. And this little double building here, that's Bethesda. So it's like super close, okay? I want, to, I want you to kind of get the layout of how this whole thing is set up. Now, I would show you pictures of like what Bethesda looks like now, but it wouldn't make a lot of sense to you because it just looks like a bunch of like big blocks on top of each other. It's kind of torn down, but I mean, there's, there's plenty of pictures. Then at one point, they tried to build a church in the middle of all of this. But let me just kind of describe what's going, up, what's going on here with this picture and the pool of Bethesda. Water being super important on the Temple Mount, they channeled the water through these different reservoirs or or through these different aqueducts into this reservoir. And this water, they would keep it built up. Well, it got to a point where they would build it and then they doubled it. So now it's like two pools that are connected. And in the middle of where they connected it, they put another porch. So they have the porches on all four sides and the porch in the middle. So this place of these five colonnades or five porches, they're at the Pool of Bethesda. They would channel the water in. They would try to maintain the level of the water. And so they would have, they had a dam that was built up and then they had a sluice gate. They would open the sluice gate to let more water in. 
And that's how they would regulate the height of the water. But when they would open the sluice gate, it would stir the water, and that gave rise to a legend that we're about to learn about now in verses 3 and 4. It says, In these days lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So there in Bethesda, the house of mercy, lay this great multitude of sick people, blind people, lame people, paralyzed people. Not just a multitude, but a great multitude, it's specified. So many people clinging to the hope of a legend. When in actuality, what was likely happening is, is that city officials were just opening a sluice gate to maintain the height of the water level. And every time they did, the water get all stirred up. And then everybody get all excited and they'd all jump into the water. Now, what about this legend? Because some of you were like, look, I have my Bible here sitting on my lap, and that stuff you just read in verse 4 is not here. And you know what? It's not in a lot of manuscripts. A lot of super early manuscripts, it's not there. But it shows up in a lot of manuscripts as well. So what's thought to have happened here is, because look, there's a bunch of people hanging out around the pools, and then we're about to find in verse um, 7, that everybody's trying to jump into the pool, and this man is looking for that jumping into the pool to be healed. And so th- what, what, what scholars believe is that this was sort of like a, a, a scribal insertion as like a commentary, not originally there, to kind of you know, like, well, hey, there was this urban legend, and they kind of backed it up. It's not like angel, an angel's like actually like, let me stir the water. Let's make it fun. We'll put a contest. We'll do a foot race for paralyzed people. And yeah, you know, there's none of that going on. It's a legend. And yet, all of these people clinging to a legend. What were they waiting for? Why were they there? They wanted to be healed. Like, ultimately, that's what drew them to that place. They wanted to be healed. They were desperate. And in their desperation, they had heard that maybe there's something going on here that I don't understand, but I'll try anything. I just want to be healed. And even today, there are so many people who are clinging to legends. You know, they're looking for the stars. Look into their horoscope. Let me tell you what your horoscope says. That the stars are exactly where God wants them to be. That's about it. You know? They're looking to rocks. Look, rocks are pretty. Geological formations. But they're not magic. They're not like sending frequencies into your soul. That's a legend. And yet so many people are clinging to legends because they're desperate. All sorts of other things. There's tons of people that are burning sage nowadays because they think that it's going to chase off demons. But let me tell you, demons aren't like, oh no, there's that smell that I hate. Let's run away, guys. 
No. If you're burning sage because you think it smells good, cool. But if you think it's magic, you're clinging to a legend. And I get it. Like, you're desperate. You want to be healed, and you'll try anything. But that's the sad thing is that you'll try anything. People are planting tea leaf on the corner of their house because they think it's going to ward off spirits. That's a legend. You know what keeps evil spirits away? The Spirit of God. It's not like God's attracted to the tea plant, like, oh, man, I have to hang out at this house. You want God into your house? Invite him into your house. Invite him into your life. Make it that we're, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But don't cling to legends. There's so many legends that are out there. So many things. But yet I get it. I get the desperation. I get the longing. (laughs) Even today, sadly, there's Christians that think that they'll be heard if they climb certain steps on their knees. Or if they, you know, touch certain statues. But it's legend. But the hunger and the hurting is real. And even this, they don't know if it'll work for them, but they heard it might work. And they just want hope. Hope that there's something bigger than them. Something that's beyond what they can understand. Hope that maybe in the middle of their impossible situation that it can change. Are you hoping in empty things this morning? If you are, I just want to encourage you, put your trust in Jesus. So this legend and all of these hurting people that are longing for their situation to change, and they've all showed up here. And with that, we see verses 5 through 7. Oh, is this broken now? Anyway, thank you, Janet. Um, Verses 5 through 7. It says, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. So among those that are waiting to be healed, we meet this man. 38 years he's been sick. 38 years unable to walk. And when you're unable to walk, you know what that means? You just sit there. You sit there unless, unless somebody has compassion on you and will carry you a little bit. But otherwise, you sit there. And if, unable to walk means that if no one has compassion on you and you need to go to the bathroom, you don't get to go to some sanitary place. You go where you are and you stay where you are. This man, for the last 38 years, had to sit wherever he was, sitting in his own filth and stewing in his own thoughts. And when Jesus asked him, after 38 years of this circumstance, this situation, do you want to be made well? Like, he couldn't even bring himself to answer that question directly. Do you want to be made well? The answer that you would expect would be like, yes, please. 
or even just, yeah. But instead, he can't say yes because he's been thinking about this for 38 years. He's been thinking about his circumstances, his situation, how things turned out, how he got to that predicament. 38 years, that's a lifetime. Like I've been walking with Jesus now for 28 years and it's hard for me to remember all of the specifics of what I was like before I met Jesus. 28 years, this guy 10 years on me in his desperate situation and all of that time just stewing on his thoughts. And so what does he give when Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Here he is at a place where people are hoping in a myth. And instead of answering Jesus directly, he goes into all of his reasons why he can't get into the pool. Do you want to be made well? We see that pool? I can't get there. You know why I can't get there? Because I don't have anyone to lift me into there. So not only is it my situation, but it's also the, the, the issues surrounding it. Like other people, they might have people that'll lift them in. Or other people, they might be able to carry themselves in. But I'm not like other people. I'm at a disadvantage here. Not only am I paralyzed, but no one will carry me. So it's not just that simple, yes, I want to be made well. I don't have anyone to get me to the place. There's not an equality here. And so therefore, like I am like, I'm sick, I'm paralyzed, and I'm a victim of my circumstances. And that's what he gives Jesus. He gives his excuses. Here he is sitting in the house of mercy. And when asked if he would like to be made well, he simply answers, I have no man. 38 years. And his answer is, I have no man. How long is it going to take you before you realize that man is not the answer to your problems? 38 years and he's like, I have no man to get me where I need to be. This morning, if you're in a place where you got your excuses and if you have your tendency to tell yourself and others that, well, I have every right to hold to my excuses because of my circumstances and I'm a victim of my circumstances. And if you've been thinking that man is the answer to your problem, listen, not only has it been proven over and over again, but the scriptures say it very clearly in Psalm 118, verse 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. So whether that's looking at man and what man can do for you, or whether that's looking at princes, you know what princes are? Princes are government officials. So if you're looking at government to get you to where you want to be, or you're looking to your neighbors or others to where you want to be, listen to this. The scripture tells you it is better to put confidence in the Lord than anyone or anything else for that matter. Do you want to be made well? Ask yourself that. Do you want to be made well? And if the response is, yeah, but, no, 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 set that aside. Do you want to be made well? Stop looking to pools. 
Stop looking at what everyone else has. Stop looking at your situation. Look to the one who says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Look with me in verses 8 and 9. It says, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. What a miracle! 38 years, 38 years reversed immediately, like right then. 38 years in this circumstance, I have no man that will carry me to the pool. Jesus doesn't talk about the pool. He doesn't talk about getting in the water. He doesn't talk about no urban legends or superstitions. He just with full authority says, get up, take up your bed and walk. It's a command. He commands this man to be healed. And the man's healed. Immediately made well. He did exactly what Jesus told him. But you know there's a bit of scandal in this miracle? It's not the scandal of the fact that he can walk, of which he wasn't able to for 38 years. It's not that he can now carry his mat when for 38 years his mat carried him. The scandal was, and that day was the Sabbath. And Jesus had told him to carry his bed. Sabbath. I need to say a little word about Sabbath. Sabbath is the only major command that is as old as creation itself. It goes all the way back. It's not just something that like, like came out of nowhere when you know, Moses is there um, on Mount Sinai. To, to understand it, you got to go back to Genesis chapter 1. And you got to consider what the sixth day was and then the seventh day. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Genesis 2, verse 1. And thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And the comment on, on it being finished was there in verse 31. And it's all very good. And then from there, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Interestingly, on the seventh day, there's no mention of, and morning and evening were the seventh day. There's no talk about an end to the seventh day. It's speaking of a state and a condition that's like intended to go on. This resting in the goodness of all that God had made. So it looks back to that. God looked on the world that he had made and it was very good. There was no sin, no sickness, no broken humanity, no man lying for 38 years with a longing to be able to have a fullness to his life, but is now stuck in a medical condition, kind of half living and at the same time just kind of waiting to die. There's none of that. Sabbath looks back to when everything was very good, when it was right. But Sabbath also looks forward. 
to when God restores all things. Forward to when, as it says in Revelation 21, 3 through 5, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. It looks forward to when there's no more sin, no more death, no more dying, no more man sitting on a mat wishing to be made well. Remember, God made a world that was very good. And man sinned and thus introduced the presence of evil into this world. When Adam sinned, it says that at that point, death entered the world. That death entered. And so Sabbath looking forward to like the restoration of all things, looking back to the intention of how it should have been. With that, the command was given in Exodus 20. Verse 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your sons nor your daughter, not your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in it, in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. God ceased from his works of creation. He, he wasn't creating anything else. He rested from creation. In fact, like, it's not like he was like, you know what I would love? I would love to see whales with wings. And then so like day 34, he creates something new. None of that. Created it all in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And after that, there's no new creation until there's new creations. The only other thing that God ever made. <laughs> now this like this is like side side note kind of stuff. There was a time where twenty three chromosomes out of nowhere joined with the 23 chromosomes of the human race of the Virgin Mary of the lineage of David, the seed of Abraham, and became the, new, the, the, the figurehead of the new creation. And therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. But that's a side study, so we're not going there. But honoring this Sabbath rest, it was so serious. It's not like a shame on you. This is how serious it was. Exodus 35, verse 2. Work shall be done for six days, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day shall be holy day for you. A Sabbath rest to the Lord Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. 
This was a capital offense. Jesus said, take up your mat and walk on the Sabbath. Go and go do the capital crime. What? Healing a man in order to do work on the Sabbath. It was not lawful for him to carry his bed. Jeremiah 17, 21. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Well, guess what? He's inside the gates of Jerusalem, bearing a burden at the command of Jesus. Jesus told him to bear a burden. Now, okay, wait, wait. Now, I do have to say that the Jews did like extrapolate the Sabbath and they made it really, really difficult. So you have like the Talmud, then you have the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there's, I think there's 20 chapters dedicated to Sabbath alone. And within these 20 chapters, you'll find some weird stuff, right? Like you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. And so with that, you're not allowed, if you have a sore tooth, to gargle with vinegar. Because if you do, you might end up being healed, and thus you violated the Sabbath. But then they found a way around it. They say, well, if you eat food that has a lot of vinegar in it on the Sabbath, and you happen to be healed, then you're healed. So you, they're a workaround, right? If you were on a mat and you couldn't walk, two people could carry you and not violate the Sabbath. One person couldn't. Two people could. Because that way, no one was guilty of doing a whole work. It was a half work, so it's technically not a work, so you're fine. But you couldn't carry your own mat if you were healed. Remember we talked about it earlier, that if you spit on the Sabbath, you could spit on a rock, but if you spit on the dirt and it happened to mix and become clay, that was a work. You violated the Sabbath. So these guys, they, the rabbis, they learned their workarounds so that they could get out of Sabbath easy, but then they could also use it to put heavy burdens on people that they themselves weren't, worthy, weren't willing to bear. So there, there was crazy exaggerations to the Sabbath. There was that. But what Jesus told this guy here, carry a burden within the walls of Jerusalem on the Sabbath, that's not Mishnah Talmud. That's straight out Scripture. Now, right away, you're like, wait a minute. How does that work? Because I told you, I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. And I'm going to let Jesus explain it himself when he preaches the sermon about it next week. So Jesus told him to bear a burden in Jerusalem on Sabbath, verses 10 through 13. It says this, And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Correct. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. What do the Jews see? They see a guy on Sabbath, carrying his bed. They see a violation. A violation of the Sabbath. Hold on, that is not okay. What they don't see? 
is a man who had been crippled for 38 years and is now walking and healed. They would have known who this guy is. It's not like Jerusalem was a massive city back in those days. The Jews of Jerusalem would have known the guy who couldn't move at the pools where the rabbis and the priests would go to to get water for the temple services. They'd have known about this guy. He'd have been there every single day for, thir- for a long, long time. But now they're not like, dude, you're the guy that's been laying here forever. He's not that guy to them. You know who he is? Dude, you're the dude who's carrying your bed on Sabbath. All they see is the violation. What does the man see? The man sees, as it says there, he answered them in verse 11, he who made me well. They see a man carrying his bed on the Sabbath. He sees a man who is made well. He said to me, take up your bed and walk. So primary to him is the miracle. Primary to the Jews is the violation. Is it a violation? Yeah, and that's one side of the coin. Is it a miracle? Yeah, that's the other side of the coin. And then see how the Jews ignore all that in verse 12? They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? So they put their emphasis back on the violation. He said, take up your bed. Who is he? And interestingly, to the Jews, he was a Sabbath breaker. But to John, who is writing this account, John says in verse 13, but the one who is healed. So the man sees himself as the one who's been made well. John sees him as the one who is healed. The Jews see him as the one who's violating the Sabbath. And so in verse 14 and 15, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The temple, we just saw the picture. The temple was just a short walk from the pool of Bethesda. I mean, it's just an alleyway. The sheep gate. Nowadays, Gentiles and Jews can't walk through that gate. Only Muslims. So you could stand outside and you can look down the alley. You can look into the Temple Mount. It's there, but you just can't go there. You can come out that way, but you can't go in that way. You can only go in through this weird side entrance and they inspect you and make sure that you're wearing appropriate clothing. And if you're not wearing appropriate clothing, they dress you in like a mix between Islamic clothing slash fluorescent yellow construction worker so everybody knows that you're being shamed for dressing not appropriate for the Temple Mount. And they put some interesting clothes on you. A couple of our guys had to wear it. It It's pretty funny. So you have to go in this weird wooden ramp up this side entrance. You can't go in through these other gates. But in those days, sure you can. He'd just been healed in the pool of Bethesda, or at the pool of Bethesda. It's a short walk for him to go to the Temple Mount. 
And it was an appropriate place for him to go to give thanks to God for healing him. Jesus finds him there and says, sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. So this seems to imply that those last 38 years of paralysis were directly related to sin in this man's life. He knew how he had gotten into that desperate situation. And all of those days just sitting helpless, sitting in his own filth, unable to do the basic thing, and to have that haunting thought that it was because of something that he had done. I kind of related to this a little bit this week. On Monday, on one of the properties that I managed, we had people that were driving around the gate to get into the property, over the bushes and everything. So I went and got these really large rocks, and I put them throughout the landscaping so that people can't drive through that. While I was getting these rocks, like one of the rocks that I lifted, it was on the very upper end of what I could lift. I was like, I was personally surprised that I got it into the back of my truck. I'm like, barely, barely, and I get it up and in. Cool. After I had just done that big, big rock, the next rock that I see was much smaller. So I'm like, you know, oh, Mr. Confident now. I just did this giant rock. So I'm like, I got this one. And I went like this. And I went like this. And And all week long, I've been like, oh, I was so stupid. One, one moment of my own arrogance. One moment. And now all week, I'm like, I did this to me. No, someone else didn't do this to me. I did this to me. And it's amazing how quickly, like, one thing, one decision can alter the entire course of your life. Luckily for me, it was just a week. But there's things that you can do that, boom, it'll blow out your whole life. Especially if it's directly connected to sin. Think of like one bad decision. Where somebody, you know, they're in a a drunken stupor and they they storm off and they make this life-changing mistake. And then they have to hold that. Where they they go off and they do something when they're not in their right mind. Or they set off in a direction and they end up in some situation that lasts them for so long. And they always remember it was because of my decision. My sin brought me here. There can be a relationship between sin and sickness. Now, we're going to find later at the Pool of Siloam that that's not always the case. Remember the blind man, and they asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus breaks that connection. It's not like an all-the-time kind of thing. However, sadly, Job's comforters believe that. Here's a righteous man, and they're accusing him of some kind of sin for all of this to to befall him. There are spiritual leaders that will take that assumption and they'll just heap guilt upon people. You are not healed because you have some kind of unconfessed sin in your life. And I wish that they, like Job's comforters, would just shut their mouths. Because that's not always the case. But this man, this man who for 38 years knew that there was a connection between his condition and his sin. And Jesus found him in the house of mercy. And he healed him. Now he has a new chance in life. Now he knows. 
It was Jesus who healed him. And so what does he do with this information? Jesus has healed me. You know what he does? He runs and he rats Jesus out to the Jews who are going to try to pin a capital offense on someone. So thanks a lot, dude. Like, what a great guy. He's just like, now he's healed and he's out trying to just save his own skin. And that's why it tells us in verse 16, it says, For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. They persecuted him because the way the Greek has it, see, it says here, because he has done these things. It's not that he done, did this. He did these things. But the Greek has it as this like continual tense that he kept doing this kind of thing on the Sabbath. So Jesus isn't like, oh man, I see you here and you've been sitting in your own filth for 38 years and I want to heal you, but bro, you got to wait. I'm coming back tomorrow. He's like, I'll heal you now. They persecuted Jesus because he had kept doing this kind of thing. They loved their concept of the Sabbath. Their concept of the Sabbath denied the hungry and it exploited the sick. But when Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, showed up caring for the hungry and healing the sick and the lame, they began to lose their minds. Remember when Jesus' disciples were hungry and they were walking through the grain fields and they were picking grain, threshing it by, you know, just rubbing the chaff off, blowing it, and then eating the grain. And they're like, you're working on the Sabbath. And they love to deny the hungry on the Sabbath. Remember the man with the withered hand? They set him up in the synagogue because they knew, predictably, Jesus wasn't going to leave this man hurting and crippled on the Sabbath. And Jesus healed him right then and there. There's more to all this. And like I said, I'm leaving this as a cliffhanger. We're about to get into one of the deepest sermons recorded in the Gospel of John. Before we do that, and all, your, all these questions that are in your mind, Bethesda. Bethesda, the house of mercy. And as Jesus said in another time while he was accused of violating the Sabbath, in Matthew 12, verse 5 through 8, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you, in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not um, condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I desire mercy. And here Jesus extending mercy to a man who is in a desperate situation, a situation that he himself had caused, a situation that he had clung to legends and found them useless. He was looking to man and found out man couldn't help him, but Jesus healed him and Jesus gave him a new start. Mercy. And the simple question that you need to ask yourself, do you want to be made well? This morning, Beth Hased, Bethesda, the house of mercy, that word has said throughout the Hebrew Bible, it's translated different ways. Steadfast love, mercy, kindness, 
goodness. These are words that kind of help us understand what it's meant, but they only skim the surface. Hased is one of the most fundamental characteristics of God. It's his covenant faithfulness to his people. And we find the word in Psalm 103, verse 4. It says, bless, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy. And in the house of Hased, Jesus, the one who is the fullness of all of this, the fullness of God, all his love, all his mercy, all his grace and kindness in bodily form. Do you want to be made whole? And this man found all of that right there at the command of Jesus. 